Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Tiffany Marie Sowers was born in Henry County, Missouri on August 18, 1985, and went on to graduate from Villa Duchesne High School in Frontenac, Missouri in 2003. At the age of 20, Tiffany was a junior civil engineering major at Clemson University, where she was also a member of the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. She lived with roommates at the Reserve Apartment Complex near Clemson in Central South Carolina. She was known for helping feed the homeless, counseling high-risk and in-crisis teens, and spending time with nursing home residents. On the afternoon of May 26, a former roommate returning a key shockingly discovered Tiffany's deceased body. She was last seen the night before at 11.30 when she was dropped off at her home. She had been strangled with her own bikini top less than two hours after being dropped off, and investigators found no sign of forced injury. After collecting DNA from the scene and sending it off for testing, a match was found. The suspect was Jerry Buck Inman, who was a former inmate and sex offender and a known thief. On May 25, 2006, he had traveled to Clemson from his home in Tennessee looking for stuff to steal when he spotted Tiffany outside her apartment. He waited until after midnight, entered her home while she was sleeping, and sexually assaulted and strangled her to death. Inman then took her bank card and tried accessing her account using an ATM, but forgot the access code he forced her to give. In 2008, Inman pleaded guilty to murder and several other charges in Tiffany's death. Just days before he murdered Tiffany, Inman had sexually assaulted a Tennessee woman while her young daughter watched and had attempted to sexually assault an Alabama woman before she talked him out of it while praying aloud. Surprisingly, during the initial trial, Inman requested to go ahead and skip to the sentencing phase and insisted that he be given the death penalty. He admitted that he was an animal who could never be rehabilitated. Inman spent most of his adult life in prison after sexually assaulting a Florida woman in 1987 at the age of 17. He then murdered Tiffany just nine months after being released from prison. Inman's attorneys argued that he should receive life in prison because he suffered from psychological problems and felt extreme guilt for his crimes. However, Inman disagreed, telling the judge he was a serial rapist who deserved to die. Because Inman pleaded guilty to killing Tiffany, state law required that the judge, not a jury, be solely responsible for deciding Inman's fate. In the end, the judge sentenced him to the death penalty. However, 11 years after his sentencing, in 2020, a South Carolina judge ordered a new sentencing hearing for Inman 14 years after he murdered Tiffany. 
The judge insists that a jury, not a judge, must be the deciding party to sentence someone to death, citing a U.S. Supreme Court ruling from four years earlier. Finally, in 2023, the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down the possibility of a new sentencing trial, leaving Inman on death row awaiting execution. On December 19, 1982, 16-year-old Mary Jane Malatok was at the Sierra Theater in Milpitas, California with some friends, waiting for her 16-year-old cousin, Jeffrey Flores Atup, to get off work. After he closed up the theater, they walked to a nearby 7-Eleven off North Abel Road to grab some snacks for the night. After leaving the store, they headed for Jeffrey's home on Horcajo Street but would never arrive. Jeffrey and Mary Jane were last seen walking north on North Abel Road around 12.35 a.m. The next day, on December 20, 1982, at about 6 a.m., a person called the police to report a body had been found near the intersection of Green Valley and Scott Creek Roads in Fremont, California. When investigators arrived, they found Mary Jane's body and quickly determined that she was the victim of a homicide. She had been sexually assaulted and shot to death. That same day, at 8.35 a.m., the police received another call about a body near the intersection of Hunter Lane and Mission Boulevard. This would turn out to be the body of Jeffrey, and just like Mary Jane, he had suffered a fatal gunshot wound, and his death was also quickly ruled a homicide. Initially, it was unknown if the two murders were related, but investigators soon learned that the two were cousins and had left the 7-Eleven together a few hours before their bodies were found. Unfortunately, after an exhaustive investigation, including multiple interviews and possible persons of interest, their cases would go cold for the next 40 years. In 1999, detectives with the Fremont Police began looking at key DNA evidence and uploaded it into the National DNA Database. However, no suspects emerged. In 2018, the case was once again reopened, and the DNA was sent to Parabon Nano Labs for advanced DNA testing. Once the results were complete, a genetic genealogist was able to track down a suspect by the name of Clifton Hudspeth. Unfortunately, justice would never be served, because Hudspeth died in 1999 at the age of 48 from an unknown medical condition. At the time of the murders, he was 31 years old and lived relatively close to where the teens had last been seen. Hudspeth had a long criminal record consisting of bank robberies, sexual assaults, and at least one attempted homicide. As for their families, they had sadly lost hope over the years, but say they are now forever thankful to Detective Jacob Blass for reopening the case and giving them some long-awaited closure. As of 2023, police continue to look into the possibility that Hudspeth could have been involved in other crimes around the area. Marcy Leah Belez was born on October 28, 1972, in Spokane, Washington, where she lived with her parents and four sisters. In 1985, 12-year-old Marcy was a sixth grader at Grant Elementary School. On Saturday, August 3rd, at about 7 p.m., Marcy ran away from home wearing a lilac-colored dress and some new rubber jelly shoes she had just purchased with her allowance. This was special because 
She lived in a very strict family, and this was the first time she was ever allowed to buy her own clothes. However, her father was displeased with her outfit and appearance and made some unsettling comments to her. Frustrated and upset, she gave her mother a hug and told her she loved her and left the house never to be seen alive again by her family. After leaving her home, Marcy went to a friend's house before ending up at a party at 1125 East Newark Avenue. She was allegedly last seen around 10 p.m. that night. After the house party, Marcy was never seen again. The next day, when she didn't come home, her mother reported her missing. Her family and the police began looking for her, but there was no sign of Marcy. Two days later, on Monday, August 5, 1985, the owner of a towing yard at 811 East Pacific Avenue found Marcy's deceased body under a rusty boom truck. Sadly, she was still wearing her new lilac dress. It was determined that she had been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death. When investigators arrived on the scene, they found little evidence except for a leather sheath made for a 5-inch double-edged knife manufactured by Gerber. An autopsy was performed with a medical examiner noting that there were 31 total stab wounds. The saddest part of all is she had no defensive wounds, meaning she never tried to fight off her attacker. A detective working on the case noted that her attacker was likely a man motivated by his anger toward women and girls. The same month she was found, the police raided homeless camps along the railroad and the Spokane River, looking for anyone with information regarding her murder. In total, 115 people were interviewed, but no information led to a suspect. The case would then go unsolved for the next 35 years. During this time, the police interviewed a total of 257 people and identified 87 potential suspects, with more than a dozen being ruled out by DNA testing. In 2019, with the help of Parabon Nanolabs and genetic genealogy, a suspect by the name of Clayton Carl Geis was finally identified. Geis was a native of Montana who was only 22 years old at the time of the murder and was living about two miles east of the crime scene at 3908 East 2nd Avenue. However, in January 1989, less than three years after the murder, Geis rolled his car off Appleway Boulevard near Interstate 90, killing him in the process. When he died, he only had one arrest on his record for a minor drug charge. It's believed that Geis met Marcy at the house party that night and convinced her to get in his car, then killed her when she tried to escape his sexual advances. However, the true details of that night will most likely continue to remain a mystery. At least for her sister, Donna, she says that now that the case has been solved, it's like a big weight has been lifted off. Judy Ide Nesbitt was born on July 15, 1938, in Santa Monica, California. She went on to marry Fred Nesbitt, and together they had three sons and a daughter. In 1980, they had just purchased a new home and were in the process of moving and had decided to sell their 36-foot yacht, the Felicidad 4. On November 26, the day before Thanksgiving, 42-year-old Judy left for the Marina Dunes Yacht Anchorage in Newport Beach shortly before noon for a 1 p.m. appointment to show the boat to a potential buyer. 
An office employee at the marina saw Judy just before 1 p.m. She said Judy said hello and quickly excused herself, saying she was expecting the potential buyer soon. This was the last person ever to see Judy alive. When the buyer showed up, he followed Judy into the boat's sleeping quarters and attacked her. After a violent struggle, he shot and killed Judy and then stole her credit cards, checkbook, and cash from her purse before ultimately fleeing the scene. While the murder was going on, several people at the marina heard the screams, but no one ever called the authorities. That evening, the Nesbitts had plans to have the entire family over for dinner, consisting of 25 people. When Fred returned home, the table was set and everything was ready, but Judy was nowhere to be found. The yacht had a working phone on it, which he tried calling, but there was no answer. By 7 p.m., when Judy failed to return home, Fred went to the marina to check on her. When he arrived, he found the boat still in the marina and descended down into the cabin. This is when he found Judy's deceased body. She was found fully clothed, and there were no signs of a sexual assault. After Fred left the home, their daughter, Lisa, waited a little while and then called the boat to see what was going on. That's when a paramedic answered, and Lisa demanded to speak to her mother and received the shock of her life, with the person telling her that her mother had passed away. Investigators worked through the holiday weekend, trying to obtain a lead on a suspect, but were unsuccessful. A couple of sketches of the suspect were released, but no one was ever identified. Eventually, the case went cold and would remain unsolved for the next 41 years. In 2002, roots from the suspect's hair were used to create a limited DNA profile that was entered into CODIS, but it returned no matches. In 2018, Green Laboratories extracted DNA from the suspect's hair shafts and created a more extensive DNA profile, a DNA extraction process that was the first of its kind to help identify a murder suspect. The results were then sent off to genetic genealogist Cece Moore, who got to work mapping out the suspect's family tree. This eventually led to suspect Kenneth Elwin Marks. However, Marks would never be arrested because he died from cancer on April 30, 1999, at his home in California. In the end, investigators are happy that Mark's crime is now out for the world to see and that Judy's family finally has some long-awaited closure. Naomi Ora Katinger Sanders was born on March 3, 1915, in Humboldt, South Dakota. At some point during her life, she moved to Vallejo, California, and married a couple of times over the years, but both marriages ended in divorce. She was described as a hardworking, vibrant woman who absolutely loved life. In 1973, 57-year-old Naomi was living alone in apartment 12 at the Oakwood Garden Apartments in Vallejo, where she worked as the on-site apartment complex manager. The apartment location was about 30 miles from San Francisco. On the night of February 27th, sometime after 8.45 p.m., Naomi was at home making a steak dinner for her and her poodle, Cindy. However, her night was sadly interrupted when someone came into her apartment and viciously attacked her. When the police arrived, they found Naomi's nude body on her bed with Cindy watching over her. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death. 
Naomi's apartment doubled as the apartment office, and she would regularly invite apartment hunters in. Since she had no known enemies or ex-angry boyfriends, investigators assumed the murderer encountered Naomi while looking for an apartment to rent. She also had a sign hanging in her window with the word open on it, so it's possible the murderer was a passerby who happened to see the sign. Unfortunately, with no leads, the case would go unsolved for the next 47 years. In 2014, investigators sent Naomi's clothes off to the state crime lab for testing, and lo and behold, they were able to recover male DNA. With a DNA profile in hand, they entered it into CODIS, but sadly, no matches were found. In 2016, detectives tried familial DNA technology, but once again, this led nowhere. In 2018, detectives partnered with Parabon Nanolabs, and they were able to generate a DNA snapshot which was used for genetic genealogy. From this, they were able to develop two leads. Detectives checked out the first lead in Louisiana, but it turned out to be a bust. The second lead led them to the son of the possible suspect, who agreed to submit their DNA for testing. That DNA was a match and led them to suspect Robert Dale Edwards. Edwards was 22 years old at the time of Naomi's murder, and detectives learned that Edwards' father was once a co-worker of hers. Edwards had a very long criminal history, consisting of assault charges, theft, DUI, domestic violence, and even attempted murder. However, they were never able to arrest him because he died in 1993 of a drug overdose. Since Naomi never had any kids of her own, and many close to her have since passed, detectives had to reach out to distant relatives who remembered stories of her and were pleased the case was finally solved. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.